now uh, to just join together in worshiping God in, in, in a variety of ways. You know, when we give our offerings, uh, you know, when we have prayer together, singing beautiful hymns of praise together, uh, and then, you know, sitting through the proclamation of God's word. So, so important to the life and the vitality of the believer. And I'm glad that you're here. Pray that you receive a blessing. As I continue in this series of messages that I've been preaching for whoever knows how long, pre-COVID, uh, for the book of the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to ask if you will turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 12. And uh, we'll begin in verse 1 of uh, Luke 12. You know, it's interesting to try to envision the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly at this point. He's about a year from making his trek to Jerusalem, where he will face uh, a cruel Roman cross and carry out the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan as the precious lamb of God for you and me. And now the intensity is beginning to increase in his ministry. The Lord's ministry is now primarily in the region of Judea, whereas before in previous years, he was in the region, the northern region of Galilee, country folk, if you will. Now he's drawing closer to Jerusalem, the influences of Judaism, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. In fact, he's hounded constantly now because they're afraid of him. They're threatened by this, this uh, uh, anointed rabbis they, they would see, or sometimes they see him as, as a tool of the devil. I mean, the intensity is, is, is growing. The, the popularity of Christ continues to increase. The very first verse we look at says, in the meantime, when the, an innumerable multitude. Folks, that's, that's a lot of people. You don't want somebody to say, oh, you're having a cookout. I noticed your neighbors are coming. Well, how many? Oh, an innumerable multitude. And you start, you know, slicing those hot dogs down the middle. But anyway, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. Some translation says many thousands. And and, and they're so packed in. And, and there's Jesus and, and there are mobs of people just pressing in, thousands of them, such that that. Luke says there in verse 1, not only is there an innumerable multitude of people gathered there so that they trample one another. Sounds like maybe a South American soccer event or something. I mean, people are just walking on top of people almost, you know, just, just to draw in to get closer to the action surrounding Jesus. Now, in Galilee, when Jesus was preaching and teaching those beautiful, you know, wonderful kingdom messages, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and people were drawing in the multitudes. He was working miracles, including feeding thousands of people. The multitudes were coming, so many of them coming out of pure curiosity to witness these marvelous things that this, this very unusual man could do. But now we're told that the interest of the people is still there. But, but, so much of the interest of the people has shifted or gradually shifted from being mesmerized by the miracles of Christ to wanting to witness the, the antagonistic clashes between Christ and his adversaries around him. In fact, Dr. John MacArthur, in his commentary, clarifies that the keen interest and curiosity of the people at this point is not solely the result of miracles and divinely authoritative teaching of Christ, 
but now the growing antagonism between the Lord and his most vocal and combative earthly adversaries, the Pharisees and the scribes. And so the people are, are, are they're, they're there to witness this showdown, if you will. Who's going to win out? Will it be our Jewish leaders or will it be this, this uh, anointed man that has come into our midst and worked great miracles? And so in the midst of it, there's Jesus. He's, he's trying to still do teaching. He's still working miracles. He's, he's got the, the, the multitudes milling around him, trampling one another. He's got the scribes and the, and the Pharisees launching all kinds of empty and, and vicious attacks and accusations that are nothing but, but right out of the pit of hell. And, and they're trying to, to, to discredit Christ, to, dis, to try to discourage him. And yet in the midst of it, sometimes we think our world is chaotic. And in the midst of it, he is still finding time to focus on teaching the most important people in his mind, and that is his disciples. He realizes his time is drawing near. He's, he's limited. And you know, you know how we say that expression, time flies. Well, time is moving on, and he knows exactly, precisely how many days he has left, how many hours he has left, how many minutes he has left to pour into the lives of these few men. We boil down to 12, 11 minus Judas. And so it, it says there, you know, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, see, He's in the midst, he's got them as a part of the inner circle and he's trying to shut out what's going on around him enough to be able to teach them some important divine principles. We're disciples. What Jesus is telling his disciples in that chaotic environment, precious words are relevant for you and me. So don't, don't just dismiss this as, oh, this is Jesus talking to to Peter and Andrew and John and Matthew. No, he, yes, he is talking to them. But folks, he's talking to you and me through the divinely inspired word of God. One of the first things I want us to look at as we open up this first segment there, chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, is the Christian's response to hypocrisy. The Christian's response to hypocrisy. So let's just go back and pick up at verse one. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, in other words, to them primarily, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, not, not, or nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what have you have spoken in the ear in an inner room will be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus reveals the dangerous nature of the, the Pharisees' hypocrisy. They are hypocrites to the core. You know, people sometimes when we go out and share and witness to people and, and invite people to come to church, sometimes you'll hear people say you know, well, I, I'm not really interested in coming to church because so many hypocrites there. You know, I don't usually say it, but I, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, come on down. One more hypocrite's not going to hurt. But the fact is, 
there are hypocrites in the church. There are. You have people that, that, that say one thing and do another. You know, my goodness, just because you are a religious person, just because you are a religious leader, doesn't make you immune to the tendency of being a hypocrite. In fact, that was the, the core issue that Jesus is getting at. He's directing his comments, as we see, primarily to his disciples, but the crowd's listening in, too. Guess what? So are the hypocrites, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes. They're hearing Jesus say this, and he compares the hypocrisy. You know, it's interesting that that word hypocrite, hypocrisy, that we have you know, in its original intent in the language from which it came, it talked about in the Greek culture when they had these big productions, plays, dramas, and, and the actors would wear costumes or masks, you know, and they were good because they didn't have all the computer enhancements and all the orchestras and things that go along. They, when they acted, they had to be really good. And so they would put on costumes, they would put masks in front of their face, and they would, they would literally almost become that person. So hypocrite comes originally from that language as one who acts. Acts as if they are one thing when in truth they're something else. That is the Pharisees. That's the scribes. They had this, this veneer of being so holy and so righteous, and it was all an empty facade. That's why Jesus, as we saw in chapter 11, was saying, You're nothing like, you're, you're, you're nothing but unwashed dishes. You're, you're like a cup that's clean on the outside to impress people, but on the inside, you're just as nasty. You're like, you're like tombs. On the outside, they're polished and clean, but on the inside, it's, it's dead people's decaying, rotting bones. That's who you are. You give an appearance of something that in actuality, you're not. And Jesus is warning his disciples and indirectly the crowd that's gathered on around him that they need to be on alert because that same spirit of hypocrisy can become like leaven in dough. Leaven is that part of the ingredients in dough, as you well know. I, I don't bake, so I can't speak authoritatively, but I have eaten my share of yeast rolls. So I know that, 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 that the leaven is important to cause that biscuit or that roll to rise and become fluffy and to have good flavor. And so it, it, the, the leaven has a pervasive nature, a penetrating nature. But the leaven of the of the Jewish leaders, their hypocrisy had a deadly, a damning effect upon their and upon the lives of those around them who would choose to try to imitate them because it was sinful. It was deceptive. And Jesus says, be careful. Be careful. Don't you dare let this poisoning, hypocritical mindset settle into you. Christ's followers, those of us who are disciples of Christ, we should understand the fallacy and the futility of hypocrisy. Jesus was talking about that. The religious leaders may deceive the people. They deceive themselves, but they never deceive God. God 
represented in the second person of the Holy Trinity. They had no idea as they were putting on their act, as they were putting on their facade, as they had their rituals, as they were doing their, their things out in the public to draw the crowd's attention and praise. Jesus was seeing right through them. And he saw the rotten spiritual core of them. And so the, every attempt that they had to try to impress the people wasn't impressing God because he could see right through it. Let me tell you something. You can put on airs all you want. You can act and try to look and talk as religious and as spiritual as you can. And you might fool some of your family members and some of the people in church sometime. But let me tell you something. God sees right on through you. He sees you to the core for who you are. And that's why it's dangerous. It's a terrible thing, trap to fall into. And they were doing it primarily just to, to win the praise of the people, to make themselves look like that, something they weren't. But folks, this is not a new problem. This is something that, that, that we find was, was confronting the prophets of old and, and confronting the Jewish religious leaders thousands of years prior. We know that the prophet Ezekiel dealt with hypocrisy in the Jewish leaders. So did the prophet Micah deal with these, these hypocritical Jewish leaders. So did the prophet Jeremiah. I mean, this was an ongoing problem among the Jews and, and God's faithful leaders were constantly having to deal with that. The psalmist captures some of that problem from years back that was inherited down through the years through the Jewish leaders. But listen to the words of the, of the psalmist in Psalm 78. This is a perennial problem with Israel. He says, God is speaking, nevertheless, they flattered him, God, with their mouth. And they lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. Right away, you see, there is hypocrisy even in that time period. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 29, in verse 13, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths, and honor me with their lips and have removed their hearts far from me. And their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. God has confronted hypocrisy all the way back in the Old Testament. God would continue to confront hypocrisy in the midst of the people, even into the New Testament age in Romans. Paul's letter to the church at Rome in chapter two. Listen to what the apostle Paul says. You therefore who teach another, do not teach yourselves. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Hypocrisy has a way of rotting away at a person's spiritual life and jeopardizing the authenticity of their witness. But let me tell you something. It, it casts a dark shadow even upon the, the body of Christ. When people who claim to be members of a church 
claim to be part of the kingdom of God, claim to be followers of Christ, saying one thing and yet in their lives doing something absolutely in contrast that is a violation of the teachings of the scriptures, then that is a terrible thing and it hurts the witness of the church. We're wise to heed the Lord's clear warning about hypocritical living. Go back to verse two again. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have spoken in the ear in the inner room, you talk about private conversation. Get into the inner room and in a typical Jewish home, you had your outside walls. Many times they were made of clay. Robbers could dig through that, get to your valuables. So they would build an inner room as an added security. And that would be where they kept their valuables things. So to get to it, you have to go through the outer wall. And then if you got through that, then you have to go and dig through the inner chamber wall. But if the person says, I got, I got some more to tell you. I don't want anybody else to hear. Come on, come on in my house. No, 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 come on, come on in the inner room. Nobody is surely not here in here. Jesus says, listen, even those things that are spoken in secret, if you will, will be exposed. Spoken in the ear in an inner room will be proclaimed on my housetop. God will expose. Just as Christ exposed the hypocrites, God will expose every form of hypocrisy in the life of a person. So you got to be careful, folks, right? Amen? Be careful. I think about that little song that the kids often, we sing it to kids sometimes. You know, be careful, little lips, what you say. Be careful, little lips, what you say. For your father up above, he's listening in love. Be careful, little lips, what you say. Yeah, you better, because God's listening. So, so the Christian response to hypocrisy is to realize with some degree of alarm, that is not going to be a part of my life. And Jesus certainly didn't want his disciples to pick up on the bad habits of the Jewish leaders of that day, many of the people in the populace had. So also as we move forward, in addition to looking at the Christian's response to hypocrisy, consider as we look at the teachings of Christ, beginning in verse four, the Christian's respect for God. How deep, how deep is your love for God? How strong is your reverence for almighty God? How much do you really trust him in your personal walk with the Lord? Jesus encourages his followers who will face attacks for their faith to trust God, to look to God. Let's look there at verse four. And I say to you, my friends, I love it when Jesus uses more intimate terms and refers to his disciples because he's referring to me too. You know, John's gospel in chapter 15, verse 14, Jesus told his disciples, I, I call you my friends. He says, you're my friends, not just my followers, not just my disciples, but I tell you, you are my friends. And then shortly thereafter, or, or just before that, Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that a man will lay down his life for his friend. I love that hymn we sing sometimes. What a friend 
we have in Jesus. We love him. He loves us. We can trust him. He is faithful. And so Jesus said, I say to you, my friends, remember, he's directing his attention to his disciples. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, speaking of God, who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? Not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head, the experts tell us we all have, or most of us, or some of us, have 100,000 hairs on the top of your head. Now, please don't start reaching up and counting them during the message. Go home and get in front of a mirror. You come up a little short, pray. <laughs> but anyway, he knows every hair on your head. I mean, he knows everything about you inside and out. That's our God. But the very head, hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are much of much more value than many sparrows. Our Lord doesn't sugarcoat the life of being an authentic follower of Christ. He doesn't say, boys, you sign on to me and my, you know, my, uh, uh, my teachings and my life and, and my, uh, my mission, you sign on, and it's going to be gravy from here on out. Everything's going to go good. Everybody's going to like you. You're going to get, you're going to get wealthy. You're going to have everything you need. Sounds like some of the people you hear on TV today. But the Lord doesn't sugarcoat it, but he, he reminds us that in the midst of our struggles and our trials and our hardships, we have a responsibility to stay faithful to the Lord, knowing that he knows us. He knows our circumstances. He loves us. You know, Paul was saying in Galatians chapter 110, he, he nailed it as far as the Pharisees and the scribes and all of those. Paul was saying, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You know, that's a haunting passage to me. Maybe it is to you, because I believe inherent in so many of us is the desire to be a per person pleaser. We don't want anybody to be offended by us. We don't want anybody to be upset with us. We want everybody to like us. And it's nothing wrong with having friends, folks. It's nothing wrong with doing things that are pleasing for people, but not at the compromise of being faithful to the Lord. Paul says, if I was, if I was obsessed with pleasing people, then there's no way that I could possibly be a bondservant of Christ because the things that the Lord impresses upon us to do and he commands us to do, listen, it will be offensive to some people. But you see, hypocrites are always wanting the favor of people. They're always wanting people to like them and be impressed by them and to, to, to brag about them. That was, that was the Pharisees and the scribes in that day. Jesus is reminding his disciples there that when you find yourself facing people who even threaten to kill you, and, and listen, that would be the fate of many of his disciples. Church history tells us that all of the disciples, the followers of Christ, 
except for John, were martyred for their faith. Church tradition tells us. They didn't face these glorious, rosy careers, going off and establishing a big church and having a great following. Listen, many of them were threatened. Their lives were threatened. And Jesus is saying, don't fear even those who can kill you. But you ought to fear the one who has power even beyond. He says, those who kill you, you're dead. That's all you can do. You remember when Stephen was stoned outside of the city? That he was the first martyr of the church. He was one of the first deacons elected by the church, outspoken defender of the faith. And they they were the, the leaders, the Jewish people, the leaders were incensed with his teachings about Christ and 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 the, and the guilt he laid on the, the the Sanhedrin. And they were just they were so filled with anger they dragged him no court no trial dragged him out and stoned him to death. But you know, after the last rock was thrown, after Stephen breathed his last breath, that's all they could do. That was all they could do to harm this faithful servant of God. Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who are limited to just taking your life. And now he's talking loud enough, I'm sure, that the Pharisees and the scribes could hear. He says, "You want to, let me tell you who you really need to fear. And I can see our Lord maybe locking eyes with one or two of those Pharisees who had been the ones who accused him of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub or, or called him a fake and tried to discredit him. He's, he's locking eyes with them and he says, I'll tell you who you really need to fear. Is the one that has the authority and the power to take not only your physical life, but who has the unlimited divine power even after you breathe your last breath and your heart is still, he can cast your soul into the eternal blazing fires of hell. That's who you need to fear. And you know, the Lord's warning, I believe, had even a tinge of mercy to it. As he, as he made that proclamation in the hearing of the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus was, was warning them, warning them that that time is coming. They'll face the very one who would condemn their souls to hell. They could get over on the people, but they could not get over on God. But this same God who possesses the power to condemn a person's soul to eternal hell is a God who has a heart that loves his people to, to, to the nth degree, who watches over us. Jesus, I love that passage in verse 6 where he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? One commentary said that that monetary amount would equal out to about one-sixteenth of a person's daily pay. You think, well, who's going to buy a sparrow? If you're in the market for sparrows, come over to my bird feeders. There's rascals. I think they set up a K&W out there. They come out of droves. I was trying to figure out what they were worth. We're probably up about a quarter. <laughs> but anyway, we got plenty of sparrows. I mean, there's a shortage of finches and not all the beautiful songbirds. But sparrows, they're left and right. Well, what am I doing? Sparrows were sometimes the diet of the poor people. They couldn't afford the more expensive meat. 
So they would buy sparrows. And, and that's what they ate. I can imagine sitting around as a family the size of my family I grew up in. And mom bring out on a platter a sparrow. Roasted. And I said, I, I want the leg. <laughs> I think you probably have to eat sparrows kind of like those poppers, you know. I'm, I know I'm making you hungry for lunch, but anyway, yeah. But but Jesus is making a comparison here just to help his people to see. He says, you know, look at look at sparrows. You, know, you get five sparrows for, for a measly two copper coins, and, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Not a single sparrow goes unnoticed by the Creator. And sparrows, God takes care of the sparrows too. And he says, and, and not one of them is forgotten by God. He says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows you so well. He knows how many hairs you got on your head. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. I'll just venture to say you're more valuable than many bald eagles. There you go. I'll use the national bird. Listen, you are invaluable in the eyes of your heavenly Father. He loves you. He, 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 he is providing for you. He's faithful to walk with you every step of the way because you are precious in his sight. I used to love to hear. I never seen you saying that his eyes on the sparrow. And I think Marjorie Angel liked to sing that song. And I loved it because in that beautiful you know, melody, that song, are the words that are so comforting. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he's watching over me. Everywhere we go, if he's attending to a sparrow, how much more is he going to be caring for us? So, uh, you know, we've seen Jesus pointing his disciples to consider their response to hypocrisy and their respect for God, to trust him, and to know that God is absolutely in control and he is a just God. Then also consider the Christian's readiness to honor the Son of God. To honor the Son of God. The Lord had made it clear in John chapter 5, verse 23. He had made it clear that he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And of course, you know, he's speaking to his disciples and their relationship with the Son of God. He's speaking to you and me. Do we treasure the second person of the Holy Trinity? The very one who came into this world as Emmanuel, God with us, who came in and revealed to the world the, the love of God, the kingdom of God, and the way to God. And then he became that way in that he was the precious lamb of God who gave his life to die for our sins. Listen, the the. The primary love of our life should be Jesus. We honor him through our love and through our obedience. Everyone's eternal destiny rests on their confession or their denial of Christ. Amen. I mean, there's, there's no other way to have eternal life other than making the confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody's this is everybody. Not just this is not just Christians. This is everybody. Everybody's eternal destiny rests on their confession or their denial of Christ. 
It's that simple. They're not multiple ways to find your way to heaven. They're not a, a, a number of choices to choose which God you want to lean on. No way. Those who openly confess the, that Lord, that, that Jesus Christ is Lord by faith and accepting and agreeing with the Father's testimony. Remember what God the Father said about, his, about Jesus? More than once. He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. If your confession doesn't equal to that, and I know God much higher above us, but I'm just saying, if your confession doesn't line up with that, that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God who was pleasing in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, then you're off track. But for those who are agreeing in our witness, you know, to the witness of the Father, but also to the witness of the Holy Spirit, in your confession of who Christ is and what he is to you should also agree with the Holy Spirit. Listen to what John said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. The Holy Spirit gives affirmation to Christ. The Father gives affirmation to Christ. And so should we. Let's take a look in these last verses here. In verses 8 and 9. And I also say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So you see, Jesus lays it out there. Some people say, well, I'm, I'm kind of private, you know, about my faith and about my relationship with God and I'm just not into talking about it. Well, Jesus gave us a declaration here that ought to motivate you to make public confessions of who Jesus is to you. Uh, there are no secret service Christians who just go through life and never make mention of who Christ is to them. That's why in the Baptist church, we ask people who are coming to join the church, who are coming to be saved or baptized and baptized to make a public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important that you articulate. It doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be something that matches the Apostle Paul. But to be able to stand before others and say, this is what I believe about the Son of God. He is Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world. He is the Savior of humanity. He is my Savior. And he is my Lord. He died for my sins on the cross. He was buried in a grave. And after three days, he was gloriously resurrected by the power of God. He's ascended to heaven at the right hand of God the Father. That is who Jesus is to me. And I have put my full trust and my faith in him as my Lord and Savior. But Jesus says, listen, if you're not willing to confess me before men, if somehow you're embarrassed about me, 
uh, if somehow you're ashamed of me, then guess what? How can you expect me on the day of judgment before the angels of God to acknowledge that I know you? So to, to Christians, there is a responsibility to articulate publicly to others who Jesus is. That's our witnesses when we share with others. But then he says, for those who deny me before men, and you better believe he's, he's got his eye cut towards the Jewish leaders who have constantly re rebuffed everything he said about his relationship with God the Father. They, they have, they have discredit, tried to discredit all the things that he said about himself, his role as a Messiah. They, they tried to undermine and, and make him look like he's a liar. So they, they have said through their actions, we don't believe this guy. He's not who he says he is. He's an imposter. We deny him. And Jesus says very plainly there that those who deny me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Angels are oftentimes associated with judgment. In that day of judgment, those who have denied Christ by their words, those who have denied Christ through their actions, those who have denied Christ uh, publicly, privately. Listen, Jesus says, you deny me, and on that day of judgment, when the eternal destination of your soul is being determined, I will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. And what a horrible day that will be. That will be an awful day. Let's look at verse 10. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. You say, wait a minute. How can people, how can people be forgiven for speaking against Jesus? Listen, you and I were enemies of Jesus at one time, Colossians 1, 21 and 22. We were alienated from him. Don't you ever think that you never, never had thoughts against Jesus or words against Jesus, even in your actions or your priorities? Anyone, he says, speaking against the Son of God, it will be forgiven him. What about, the, what about Saul of Tarsus? A man who was absolutely committed to breathing threats against Christ and against the way, the church. And yet he was gloriously forgiven. Yeah, yeah. But the Lord goes on to say, but to him who blasphemes, against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. In other words, for someone to see the work of the Spirit of God and to discredit that, to deny that, to try to, for instance, seeing the Son of God cast demons out of a uh, demon-possessed man, and then to say that that was the work of Beelzebub. Jesus' miracles were done by the power of the Spirit of God. And they had the audacity to say, that's not God, that's the devil. They're saying that, they're basically saying that the Holy Spirit 
The work that the Spirit of God was doing was the work of the devil. And Jesus says, when you when you when you deny the work of the Spirit or try to explain it away, he says, then you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And that is a sin that will never be forgiven. People ask, what is the unpardonable sin? Sometimes they think it's suicide, some other terrible act. No, it's not. It's what Jesus says. It's to openly deny and reject the work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation comes as a result of the working of the Holy Spirit. You don't study your way to salvation. You don't work your way to salvation. The only way that I am a Christian and that you are a Christian is because the Spirit of God did his assigned work. And the Spirit of God is the one who convicted my heart of my sinfulness, my wretchedness, and impressed upon my spirit how holy God is, how sinful I was, and pointed me to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and took the Word of God and made it come alive into my heart to say, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish by their everlasting life. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It was the Spirit of God that shone the light of the truth into my heart. I never would have seen it. I never would have grasped it. But it was the Spirit of God that was working to reveal that. And I praise God for every one of you who have had a similar experience where the Spirit of God has led you right to the very Savior who could save your soul for eternity. But you know and I know that anybody that rejects the working of the Spirit of God and they resist the convicting work of the Spirit of God and they deny the appeal of the word of, of, of the Spirit of God with the Word of God, and they push Him away. That is a sin that will never be forgiven. If you have buffeted and pushed away and rejected the convicting work of the Spirit of God, made excuses, procrastinated, all the way to the point that you die and you find yourself at this point standing in judgment before the angels of God, the holy angels of God, <clears throat> then it'll be the Son of God sitting on the throne of judgment. Well, look at that person who has had attempts for the Spirit of God to convict their heart. They've rejected it. They've rejected the work of the Holy Spirit. And now they'll be looking at the judge. And Jesus will say, depart from me. For I never knew you. You'll never be forgiven of rejecting the work of the Spirit of God and, and blaspheming His holy presence. And so that's what Jesus is impressing. He says, now when they bring you up 
to the synagogues and the magistrates. We think about the Apostle Paul in our Christian growth group lessons and authorities. Do not worry about how or what you shall answer or what you shall say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You heard Paul's glowing testimony before the governor and the king while he was in prison. Paul was just rattling off the glorious truth of the gospel before these pagan leaders. Where do those words come from? Right here. Jesus said, when you're brought up before those who are your enemies seeking to do harm to you and they're subjecting you to trials and you're worried, what can I say? Listen, don't worry. The Spirit of God, pray, and the Spirit of God will put the words in your mouth. I pray to God none of you will be on trial for your faith or any other reason. But I pray that we don't experience that kind of persecution where we're being arrested because of our faith convictions. But should we find ourselves standing before a judge and having to defend ourselves and what we believe, the Spirit of God, Jesus said, will be right there to give you the words. That's nothing new in, in Exodus chapter 4 when Moses was going before Pharaoh. You know, Moses was a little tongue-tied, you know. He wasn't the best, ele most elegant speaker, you know. And, you know, and he was kind of making excuses why he shouldn't go up before this, the most powerful leader in that region of the world to tell him to let my people go. And, and, and you know what God says? Go, therefore. Go, Moses. And I'll be with your mouth. And I'll give you the words to say. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, the same Holy Spirit that can condemn people's souls to hell, who has that kind of power and authority, is the same Holy Spirit who will faithfully be with you every step of the way. You don't have to wait till you walk into the sanctuary of the church to experience the powerful movement and the working of the Spirit of God. And I say, Amen. Everywhere I go, He is with me. He lives within me. And I know that I can rely upon Him because He will give me the words to say. When you have an opportunity to talk to someone about their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and you're nervous, and most of us are, do you know? Do what I do, pray. Say a, a quiet prayer and just say, Lord, I, I'm not sure what I really want to say, how I can say it. Please give me the words to say. And you know, amazingly, you'll find those words will come. The Spirit of God will tell you the things to say. He'll, he'll bring you back to the Scriptures and help you to see the passages that you need to share with that person. Listen, don't go in your own strength. Don't go in your own abilities. Go in the power of the Spirit of God because he's even more interested in seeing people come to Christ than even you and I. And so Jesus gives that reassurance to his, to his disciples. He says, listen, the, the, the third person of the blessed Holy Trinity is on your side and he will help you. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, today, the same Holy Spirit is on your side. We used to sing a little chorus. I think it was something like, Come, Holy Spirit, I need you. Come, sweet Spirit, I pray. Come in your strength and your power. Come in your own gentle way. I like to use that as a prayer when I know I need extra help or even when I'm not facing trying circumstances just to have the reassurance of the presence of God's Spirit who knows me and who loves me 
and is here with me to help me follow him through times of adversity and struggle. He is faithful. He will lead us. He will help us. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your infallible and errant word. Thank you so much, Lord, that you have opened our eyes through the teachings of the Son of God to the very principles that are so valuable for us to live the Christian life. Lord, I, I pray that if there's even one person here today who doesn't have the assurance of salvation, has not yet made a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and as, as their Lord, I pray that, Lord, that through the working of the Spirit of God in their heart today, if indeed you have chosen them to be a part of your eternal family, that, Lord, you would impress upon them to take a step of faith, to come to, to me or one of the other elders and to, 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 to seek counsel from the Word of God and how they can come to fully claim this wonderful promise of salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ and Him alone. Lord, I pray that Christians... All of us who are followers of Christ, knowing that our world is, is growing exponentially wicked by the day. And Lord, we're finding the work of darkness prevailing in our own culture. And we're finding, Lord, even our own religious liberties uh, now being threatened. Lord, we don't know how much longer we'll have to have the freedom to be able to go out in public and talk about you without uh, consequences. So, Lord, I pray that you encourage us, that you embolden us. Lord, I pray that you help us to, to shore up our faith and trust in you. I pray that you would give us a hunger and a desire to dig into your word. And, Lord, to just pour over your word so that it becomes a part of us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a faith that is rock solid and give us the courage that comes with it that Lord would enable us to be bold witnesses for you, that we might continue to carry out that great commission that you've given to us to make disciples of all nations. Lord, help us to be faithful because we know, oh Lord, we know that you are faithful to be with us. Work out your will in every life here today. And we thank you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Mark, could I ask you to come and close our services? The Lord leads you.